2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, the lifetimes and death of shortwave radio legend and author of Behold a Pale Horse, William Cooper.
3: At a certain point, he decided that he was going to become a martyr and he was going to duke it out with the feds, hopefully, and they were going to come up and, you know, he was, he was going to shoot it out with them.
0: Hey, it's getting close. David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech is coming to Toronto October 18th, 19th and 20th to present his shocking reversals. And you can meet David and hear this amazing discovery for yourself at Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church. 40 Donlins Avenue, right across from the Donlins subway station. On Thursday, October the 18th, you'll hear the reverse speech of politicians. That's 7 to 9 p.m., just $10 at the door. Then, Friday, October 19th, the reverse speech of hitmen, mobsters and serial killers, 7 to 9 p.m., just $10 at the door. Finally, Saturday, October 20th, I'll be hosting as David solves the JFK assassination using reverse speech. 2 to 5 p.m. 2 to 5 p.m. $15 at the door. David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech, as heard on Coast to Coast AM and The Conspiracy Show, October 18th, 19th, and 20th, Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlands Avenue in Toronto. For more information, go to reversespeech.com. A presentation of crime and trauma scene cleaners.
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to your Wednesday. Author Mark Jacobson is here. He has a remarkable new book about William Cooper called Pale Horse Rider, and Mark is standing by. First, let me get a few shout-outs in here. Hi, Richard. Just to let you know, I'm an avid listener from South Wales in the United Kingdom. Really enjoy your shows, and it's great now to have two podcasts from you. Three if you include The Conspiracy Show, my weekly radio program, uh, which is also available as a podcast and, of course, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. I also run my own website, he says, for the local weather here. If you visit the site, I have a webcam which is live so you can see the view of the weather. It does rain a lot here. Keep up the excellent show's regards, Phil Samuel. Well, thank you, Phil. Uh, Next one. Hello, my husband Patrick and I, Rachel, absolutely love both your podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited and Conspiracy Show. We listen every night that you podcast. We never miss a show, even when we go camping. We make sure we download them so we can join in the fun. We live in Spokane, Washington. I originally found your show on Amazon. Then I thought, I wonder if he has any podcasts, and the rest is history. You are by far the best interviewer and always have on great guests. Thank you for your amazing work. Well, thank you, Rachel, and uh, also your husband, Patrick. Uh, Hi, Richard. My name is Peter auditor and I'm an avid listener to all your podcasts. I live in Mannering Park in New South Wales, Australia. I'm a traveling salesman. Your podcasts keep me alert and safe behind the wheel whilst I make my long trips between customers and it goes very well with coffee. As a free thinker, I really enjoy your content. Whether I agree with it or not, I still find your shows provocative. Thank you, Peter. Please shoot me an email and tell me who you are, where you are, and how and why you listen to the podcast. richardserat1 at gmail.com. richardserat1 at gmail.com. Here's a little taste of the hour of the time, William Cooper's shortwave radio program. Supposedly, a
4: CNN reporter found Osama bin Laden took a television camera crew with him went into Osama bin Laden's hideout, interviewed him and his top leadership, and he came out and told everybody within three weeks Osama bin Laden is going to attack the United States and Israel. Now don't you think that's kind of strange, folks? You see, because the largest intelligence apparatus in the world with the biggest budget in the history of the world has been looking for Osama bin Laden for years and years and years and can't find him. Some doofus, jerk-off reporter with a camera crew bosses right into his hideout and interviews him. And I'm telling you, be prepared for a major attack. But it won't be Osama bin Laden It will be those behind the New World Order. I wonder what Osama Bin Laden's targets are supposed to be. And if they don't, you know, if this doesn't materialize in the next two or three weeks, it will eventually materialize because they haven't succeeded in getting the guns out of the hands of the American people, nor have they succeeded in taking our freedoms away. And so I tell you with a certainty, they must do something terrible in order to stop this backlash and regain the sympathy
0: of the mass herds of sheeple out there. Milton William Cooper was an American radio broadcaster and author best known for his 1991 book, Behold a Pale Horse. In the book, Cooper asserted that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated because he was about to reveal that extraterrestrials were in the process of taking over the Earth. Cooper described the Illuminati as a secret international organization controlled by the Bilderberg Group that conspired with the Knights of Columbus, Masons, Skull and Bones, and other organizations. Its ultimate goal, he said, was the establishment of a new world order. As Cooper moved away from the ufology community and toward the anti-government subculture in the late 1990s, he became convinced that he was being personally targeted by President Bill Clinton and the Internal Revenue Service. In July 1998, he was charged with tax evasion. An arrest warrant was issued, but Cooper eluded repeated attempts to serve it. In 2000, he was named a major fugitive by the United States Marshal Service. On November 5th, 2001, Apache County Sheriff's deputies attempted to arrest Cooper at his Arizona home on charges of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon and endangerment stemming from disputes with local residents. After an exchange of gunfire, during which Cooper shot one of the deputies in the head, he was fatally shot. Federal authorities reported that Cooper had spent years evading execution of the 1998 arrest warrant, and according to a spokesman with the Marshal Service, Cooper had vowed that he would not be taken alive. Mark Jacobson is a writer and journalist based in Brooklyn, New York. He's known for his explorations of the seamy side of urban life and his offbeat and witty take on pop culture. Mark is a contributing editor at New York Magazine and a frequent contributor to The Village Voice, National Geographic, Natural History Magazine, Men's Journal, and other publications. He's the author of American Gangster and Other Tales of New York. And his new one, Is called Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America. Mark Jacobson, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here, Richard. William Cooper: The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America. Pale Horse Rider, great title. Pale Horse Rider. Um, I was reading a review on Esquire in Esquire magazine, and mm-hmm. uh, the the headline: "Milton William Cooper was the Godfather of Fake News." Before we get into who Bill Cooper was, just let me get your sort of your visceral reaction to that headline: "Milton Cooper, the Godfather of Fake News."
3: Well, you know, I've been a journalist for. Going on forty-five years now, and I've always hated the headline writers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nobody seems to understand. You know that the writer doesn't write the headline. No, I don't care for that headline at all. Um, I don't feel this what Bill Cooper was doing and what people are calling fake news now have really nothing to do with each other.
0: All right, so let's get into um, Milton William Cooper. Uh, let's start with. I mean, we don't know a lot, or do we, about, uh, for example, his his uh, his military record, his military background. Uh, he, he served in the navy. Uh, I think well, he said served he,
3: in the air force first.
0: Right. What Again, about naval intelligence? Uh, was
3: he? Well, I mean, uh, the naval intelligence thing, of course, is very controversial because Cooper made some, you know, some really kind of like, uh, far reaching claims about what he saw when he was working in naval intelligence. And it seemed to, um, these cha- these claims seemed to change quite often. And, um, and also the idea that he would be, uh, that he was, <laughs> I mean, he said, he said all kinds of stuff that he had seen in the, in the records that when he was in, um, in in um, naval intelligence, including the fact that William Greer, the Secret Service agent who was driving the car um, at and, and November 22, 1963, shot President Kennedy, just turned around and shot him. But uh, Cooper was claiming that he had seen this while well in naval intelligence. I, I don't really know if that would be in a kind of naval intelligence catch that Cooper might have actually seen. On the other hand, um, you know, he made a lot of claims about that, and I'm sure that he was in Naval Intelligence, and I'm, most of the people that are familiar with him believe that he did see some stuff.
0: Right, right. And, and uh, how, did he, how did he first get into to radio?
3: Um, well, he, into radio, uh, he, he, he was a book writer at first. He wrote that Behold a Pale Horse and he was on uh, he was on a lecture circuit for the most part and going around and uh, doing his thing and it was only until he appeared on the scene in the UFO world in 1988 and his radio show began in 1991 so um you know he was around for a little bit but the, the radio show was radio, no, the, the radio show began really in 1992 and then finally, he got on the air in
0: WWCR,
3: which is uh, Worldwide country- uh, i was Worldwide Country Radio, and then it became Worldwide Christian Radio. And this was the this was the place to be if you wanted to be on shortwave radio because they had the biggest transmitter. And Cooper's real the list of Cooper's broadcasts, which are available on the Hour of the Time website, all mm-hmm. nineteen on hundred and. One thousand nine hundred and twenty-six of them, including the repeats, um, which is a long way to go if you want to research William Cooper, um, because he, some of them were two and three hours long.
0: <laughs> so, right, right.
3: So um, you know, it's it's um, he's he's a um, he became a radio guy, and actually, that was really his real true meta. I think yes, I mean, he yes. He was much more effective on the radio. His book is incredibly famous, and I mean, I don't know, people know much about Bill Cooper and the Behold the Pale Horse, but Behold the Pale Horse was published in 1991 with a 3,000 hardcover run and five, no, it was 3,000 paperback and 500 hardcover. The book has sold over 300,000 copies by now, which is kind of an amazing publishing story since the publisher of it, it's never changed, it's always remained the same. There's no second editions or third editions or updates. It's exactly as he wrote it, um, and it was published in 1991. Yet people continue to buy it. And um, just as a small background about the book, I mean, the book didn't really take off in the beginning, but actually um, the people that were reading it, for the most part, in the early part of the career of Bill Cooper, were um, rappers, um, people in the hip hop world. And they picked it up for. I can go and explain it all for you, but it would take a while. Well, Tupac, um,
0: Tupac was a fan.
3: Tupac's a fan, and he was and an avid good. reader. I mean,
0: that, he was an educated fellow, Tupac. I mean, oh, he well, loved he was, to he read.
3: Was, yes, he was a big reader. And His mother, you know, he, they were they were part of this kind of radical black thing. Um, his mother was a Sala Shakur, I think. I can't remember a real first name, um, but you know, they were they were part of this kind of. Intelligentsia type thing, black community, and um, well, you know, the the uh, the first person I ever saw reading the book was um, from the Wu Tang Clan, old dirty bastard. Everybody knows who he is, right, right. Um, and uh, he was, I was just happened to walk down the street sometime in 1992, not too far from my house, where I live in Brooklyn, and I knew who he was. Um, just because I was a music critic for Esquire at the time. And, um, and I see him reading Behold a Pale Horse, which I wasn't really sure exactly what it was at the time. And um, I remembered that. And then years later, um, I talked to him about it, and I said, do you remember a time that you were reading Behold a Pale Horse? And he said, oh, yeah, Behold the Pale Horse was a very important book to me. And this, is the time, this is only a few months before his death when I actually interviewed him formally and i asked him like well what do you think uh, about the book and he said well you know in this world people are always trying to screw you and bill cooper is the guy who tells you how who it is that's trying to screw you and he also said like well when you're somebody like me that's very valuable information so you know and cooper's book was um the most read book in the prison system
0: Oh, is that well, right? It another, Interesting.
3: Oh, yeah, well, there was another book called uh, 48 Laws of Power by a guy named Robert Greene. And between uh, those two books, almost every prisoner in, like, say, Attica, and New York State prison system, read, read this book, read Cooper's book. And that's kind of how we crossed over into the rap world.
0: Interesting. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. And what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. If you were reviewing that book you mentioned, Esquire. If you were reviewing uh, that book for, or Behold a Pale Horse for Esquire, I mean, how would you describe it? Because it's so. I mean, the it talks well, about the coming Ice well, are Age. are you talking the... about?
3: Reviewing it in 1991 <laughs> yes. or reviewing it today?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's say you were reviewing it in 1991.
3: Well, I mean, you know, it's it's one of these. It's a puzzling book in the sense that most of the stuff is not really written by him. It's written by it's written it's written kind of by uh you know, he picks up a lot of documents, including some really kind of startling documents like um uh, um the silent weapons require wars, which is probably the most important document in the whole book. When it comes down to what what later becomes the truth movement and things like that. Um and it's really kind of a sort of a masterpiece of, of like explaining the way the economic system works from the point of view of uh, somebody who would be feeling that people are out to get them, um, which they clearly are, I would say. Right, <laughs> you know? right. And um, and then, of course, he had other, other things in there, like the full text of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a very controversial move at any point yes, yes. in the 20th century. And, um, and Bill Cooper, I, I really buy his story, that he ran that whole thing to show what a document that was set out to scapegoat a certain kind of bunch of people.
0: Right, that's important, because I wanted, you know, when people hear that, the flags go up and they go, oh, he was an anti-Semite, but quite the opposite. He told people, no, don't use the word Zion, it's Sion.
3: Well, I think that people tend to, most people are not really aware of uh, Cooper's mindset, tend to Mock that kind of comment, but I personally, uh, you know, I I take it. I take it as a word because, you know, he believes that every time he says the word "Jew," you're supposed to read it as Illuminati. Yes, yes. uh, And you know, and you can, you can. The Illuminati has got several definitions. I mean, people have all. You mentioned that word, and you know, people. And so, what do you think of me? What the Illuminati means, and then you know, you won't get the same exact answer from anybody. It's basically, you know, this cabal of. Of the Uber people that are controlling the universe, for one reason or another, and um, so Cooper, he's playing a little fast and loose with that kind of stuff. But on the other hand, you have to understand that the protocols of the Elders of Zion, which for people who don't know is you know this long thing, which is supposedly a a found document of of the of these people that uh, the ancient rabbis talking about. How they're going to take over the world and, and control the money and everything like that. And uh, Cooper's position was that this this document could work for anybody. That's why you can put those different names in there. Um, it's just a document to to scapegoat certain people, certain people. And it's it's ludicrous to think that it was really a Jewish document because it's been fairly much proven.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Ludic-
3: ludicrous is not the right word. I mean, but it, it's. Most most scholars, you know, honest scholars. I'm sure there are people that believe that everybody's a liar, but you know, I don't personally believe that. You know, I mean, uh, so um, you know, it, it makes sense that they would make. He published it because it's a model of of the of the best possible version of one of these documents. And in fact, most of the documents that have been written these kind of forgery documents have taken that form and followed the, the template of that document. So in that way, he was I think he was correct to run it just because you have this kind of thing which is like a pariah document. You're not even supposed to mention it because um, this is like somehow anti-Semitic to even think about it. But I, I feel that he did a brave thing in a kind of weird way. Um, to publish the whole thing,
0: right? Do you think uh, he? Well, I mean, uh, this term is overused, but the, the the idea of jumping the shark, and to you know, the idea of Eisenhower meeting with the aliens and so forth.
3: Well, you know, I mean, you got to think about a guy um, during his. He said a lot. Of, I, I would say that his his veracity quotient went up as he went along. Um, his flying saucer period was has the most wacky stuff in it no doubt about it and um, he was mostly following the uh, the the plan set out by John Lear if people in your audience know who that is he's the son of the uh, inventor of the Learjet, and also the founder of Me- Motorola, which people don't really seem mm. to know very much about. But, um, you know, William Lear, that's him. But I spoke to John Lear at length, and I love talking to John Lear. He's a wonderful guy. And, um, you know, his attitude is sort of like, I said it was a hypothesis. I didn't say it was true. It was only <laughs> Bill Cooper that said it was true. Because <laughs> <Right.
0: laughs> you know? right.
3: Lear, tells, Lear tells a story about, he wrote the Alien Hypothesis, which is The kind of base document, which actually was later adopted by Chris Carter, who is the guy behind X-Files, right? And he basically takes that point of view and goes with it. Which, and I think it was a brilliant entertainment move because it's a great idea. That you know, one of the things in there is that Eisenhower met with. Cooper's version is somewhat different, but the basic idea is that Eisenhower met with the aliens from outer space to make a deal. This was supposedly at Edwards Air Force Base in 1954. And they sit down, you know, Cooper, I mean, mean, uh, Eisenhower and and this big alien, you know, this nine foot tall alien sit down and they talk Turkey. And what Eisenhower wants is enough technology to stay ahead of the Russians. The things that became later the b two bomber and all this stealth technology it's supposed to be alien technology and the um what what the aliens want is to get their people their alien people that have been f- crashed and, and the United States is holding them prisoner or you know captive, and they also want to be able to abduct American citizens to do certain experiments on them and um Eisenhower signs off on that so <laughs> So you know, right there in that little uh, that little one afternoon uh thing, you get like a huge amount of American mythos that that continues on to this day. And um it's very difficult to tell people that feel they've been abducted by aliens that's like, Well that's not possible. <laughs> you know you know, that that they didn't see what they saw. And in fact when you go back and look at the development of American conspiracy movement um, which I basically, you know, I don't, I'm not against it, or I, I'm, I'm kind of neutral about it. You know, I just think it just exists, you know, and I don't take a political stance on it. But um, the UFO thing was the first time that a large percentage of the people in the world, you know, and this country in particular, believed that they were seeing something and the government was telling them, no, it's actually not happening. So it's that was the beginning of the... Of the of the undercutting of trust for for organizations like NASA or the Air Force or something like that because you know you know what you saw you know what you saw and now some guy from the FBI is coming along and telling you you didn't see what you saw so I mean whether or not you you what you saw is hard to to, uh, you know it could have been swamp gas but it looked like a UFO so if somebody's telling you that it doesn't exist and you're, you're kind of like need to go to a psychiatrist this is the beginning of really kind of like uh, the rooting of things where people beginning to feel that like I'm not going to trust these guys I don't think that they're telling me the truth and um, it goes on from there and for Bill Cooper the main the main moment is really the Vietnam War this when Cooper goes, is in the, before he was in the Air Force for several years, he, um, you know, actually worked on nuclear bombs, A-bombs, and, um, which got him in position to look at the apocalypse square in the face. Um, and then when he's working, when he moves on, to, to, he joins the Navy after getting out of the Air Force. And then uh, his, his goal at one time was to serve in every single uh, branch of the armed forces. But the navy. He went in the navy, and then he wanted to get transferred to the front lines in Vietnam, and they granted his wish, and he became a patrol boat captain on the uh, Qua Viet River, which is very close to the DMZ. So the NVA, people remember, the, the North Vietnamese Army, are uh, lobbing these uh, one-two-two millimeter rockets across the river. It's a terrifying situation, and Cooper's out there on the boat trying to save his men, at least according to him. And I have no reason not to believe it. So, um, and he is, uh, so at that point he begins to look at this. He's a gung ho guy from a military family and he's beginning to dawn on him that the stuff that they told him about why he was over there, which was to fight for freedom and against communism, all that kind of stuff like that was not exactly accurate. In fact, the Americans, but so I not were not the good guys. Maybe they were the bad guys. Then the Vietnamese were just fighting to protect their homeland. At least that's what Bill Cooper wound up thinking, and he's very clear about that. And it's not like you know I'm not putting words in his mouth, but and um, at that point, you're starting. You're beginning to feel that, um, well, you know, and this is just not right. I mean, I'm not. I'm. This is not the way it's supposed to go. I'm supposed to be over here defending the Constitution and and doing the right thing, but I'm not. And um, and then when he goes to Naval Intelligence, he's uh, he starts reading these documents which are direct direct conflict to what he knows is actually going on because he's reading. The, the, um, the classified documents that come into the Admiral Cleary who's working for a guy named Admiral Cleary um, the, the documents are coming into his office and he's supposed to triage them out and show the, the brass, the stuff they need to see, so he's seeing it all and he's seeing that the stuff that, Richard, that President Nixon is saying on the radio is not accurate So he begins, when he gets out of the army, gets out of the air, I mean the Navy, he comes back to the States, and he's sort of like completely confused. And he's beginning to find, that's when he begins to look for his path about trying to find what he considers to be the truth.
0: Hey, if you're a fan of Conspiracy Unlimited, check out my weekly radio show, The Conspiracy Show. It airs Sunday nights at 11 p.m. Eastern. You can listen anywhere in the world by downloading my free Conspiracy Show app. For more information, go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. You can also stream the radio program on my YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show. Please hit that red sub button. The Conspiracy Show, Sunday nights at 11 p.m. Check it out on YouTube.
2: The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident.
0: Let me just read that again, what that means.
2: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: Author Mark Jacobson is here talking about William Cooper. What was he like as 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 just as a normal human being?
2: Well, I mean, that's
3: really the most interesting Part of the book to me, and I really spent a lot of time talking about that because I think Cooper was the kind of guy who was like really trying to do the right thing, but he had a lot of demons, you know he believed that uh he was a big drinker, no doubt about that, I mean you know he tries to make tries to make a big case that he wasn't a big drinker, but I've got so many people telling me that he was drunk off his ass um so many times that I can't really discount that so um and you can tell on the radio he's pretty plastered some of the time. So, at um, any event, he—he, he, I took to two of his ex-wives, both of which had the same story that he was a—he was the most charming guy in the world, and he swept them off their their feet. And uh, and by the time they were married to him for a while, he became a very belligerent drunk and an abusive husband, and deserted them and deserted their children. You know, his, he had. He has three children before the famous children, which you people know about from listening to the radio show and he more or less deserted all three of them and um it's not it's 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 a kind of a brutal indictment of his character, but then by the time he remarries again, now he's really trying to become a actually trying to become a good person and in a sense of like you know, his ideal of that American person from the 1950s, that American dream person, like the kind of person you would see on a sitcom and, uh, you know, just kind of standard good dad. And I think he really achieves that. I mean, he, you can tell that he loves his children, the ones that he talks about on the radio, and they love him. And, um, and it just didn't end very well, you know, long before the shootout, which winds up killing him. But... um it is just it's just his his story was just fantastically interesting to me because he just seemed like this kind of classic american figure from the last third of the 20th century as somebody who was like uh trying to be a good person but was up against all these different you know enemies some real some some imagined some real some half real you know i mean you know, it's not it's not that um, he wasn't compass mezzas all the time. You know, he says a lot of strange things. But he says a lot of brilliant things, too. He was a brilliant guy in a lot of ways. And I, I, some of the things that he said I find to be as intelligent and kind of insightful as anything I've read from any famous professor like Frederick Jameson or any of these kind of people who were supposed to be such great, great thinkers. Is there something I mean, that Bill he Cooper said... was a very smart guy.
0: Is there something that stands out in your mind that's something that Bill Cooper offered up that you thought, wow, that's profound beyond words?
3: Well, I mean, I think, for instance, um, this might sound a little crazy, but um, I think his ability to see through metaphors, which he calls symbology, he's the only person I've ever heard use that word, I think he means symbolism, but um the uh, to pick out the beginning sequence of two thousand and one, that movie, yes. the Stanley Kubrick film,
0: with the obelisk, yeah,
3: yeah, with the obelisk in it, and uh, you know, it, and it's a monolith in the movie, and to say that that really is a metaphor or a retelling of the Garden of Eden story, in which Adam and Eve are not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so this monolith comes down and the and the you know almost men the apes that are there I don't know exactly what species they might be you know they're they're on the edge of becoming a, a human so and then when the thing comes down and they touch the they touch the monolith, then suddenly human consciousness begins, and he's very clear about that and I thought it's kind of a brilliant idea that like to take a to take a movie that was made in 1968, and then uh, reinterpret it to um, kind of update this this classic story that everybody knows and believes, you know, to some level. Right. So um, you know, and uh, and I just felt that, that was interesting, and also that's the first episode of his uh, of his uh, Mystery Babylon series, which is a 43 episode thing that.
0: Right, right. Uh, since you mentioned Space Odyssey and, and Kubrick, uh, what was Cooper's take on the, the, the moon landing? Did he think it was a hoax, and did he think Kubrick had a hand in it?
3: Well, the Kubrick the, the, the Kubrick, fake the moon landing meme, that's a pretty recent idea that's been, uh, that's been advanced by certain people after Bill Cooper was dead. Uh, you know, it's a recent one. I mean, uh, I don't, he picked that one up, but he never made much of a deal about it because I don't think he really, his heart was not in that one. You know, all conspiracy theories are not, I would say to your audience that all conspiracies are not created equal. Right, (laughs) right. Some are better than others. Certainly. Some are actually, um, you know, you feel when you're growing up in the 20th century, I'm 70 years old, I mean, I've seen basically the American history, I've lived American history since the end of World War Two. I mean, I've been alive. So, um, And I would say that since most of what America is supposed to all be about um, in the post, in the Cold War period, was basically created by the Dulles boys and um, guys like John McCloy John mm-hmm. McCloy was the head of the CIA. He was the head of the World Bank. He was the head of the Chase Manhattan Bank. He sat he with Hitler
0: of- during the thirty-six Olympics in Berlin. He sat in the
3: the, the yeah. Uh, no, he said, new- yeah, So you know, you know, he he's a he's a. He's the guy that was that or, that organized the Japanese people being interned in the in the concentration camps in World War two, which you know I can see why they might be nervous about that, but these were american citizens hmm. and um and also John McCloy is the guy who is fundamental in refu- in making the army not in the air, army air force is the time before the air force was created. He stood in the way of bombing the railway line, railway um, to auschwitz, which so in other words, you know the the trains that brought the prisoners in that was to then be killed by the right. Nazis. Right. So this is the guy, John McCloy. So he is considered to be one of the wise men in that famous book by Walter Isaacson, which is one of Cooper's major sources. Mm-hmm. He's always talking about that book. and um so between a guy like John McCloy, you know, head of the CFR, head of the Trilateralist Commission. I would say I would buy a used car from Bill Cooper before I buy one from <laughs> Joe McCloy. I mean, you know. So, I mean, if we're, if we're thinking about creating narrative, which I think is what conspiracy is all about, you know, I mean, why would I necessarily believe what what those guys said? Why would I believe what Richard Nixon said? Why would I believe what Lyndon Johnson said? When When I... I this stuff doesn't jibe with my personal experience and it doesn't jibe with the, with the things that I, that I happen to, you know, stuff I read. I just do a Bill Cooper thing. I do my own research and I make up my mind for myself. But, um, you know, it's just, I think that that's, what's interesting about the Cooper story because he's in that mix. He's in that mix of all that stuff. And he does it all before the beginning of the internet. He does it all before right. 2000 and, Modern conspiracy, to my mind, begins with nine eleven. Yes, you know that—that's the beginning of, of, of the kind of conspiracy movements that we are familiar with, that people talk about all the time. And the liberals hate them. And you know, I don't know. You know, it's like to be a conspiracy theorist is one of the worst things you could possibly be. You know, it's the worst put down in the world. You know, but I feel—I feel that I feel this is like stupid. You know, it, it just—it just doesn't. First of all, some of this stuff is uh yeah you're familiar with a guy named Ken Thomas
0: yes, yes,
3: yeah, so Ken Thomas and Jim Keith were big Bill Cooper fans and um, Ken Thomas invented the word parapolitics, so he didn't like the word conspiracy he liked the word parapolitics in other words um this is a, what could happen this is like you know a, a, an adjunct adjunct to history you know can you see it happening this way since like we how many times do we have to the historians have to be proved to be incorrect or pushing their own you know sharpening their own act you know or you know, to, to uh make you feel that well this isn't really set in stone here there they could have happened another way so when you when I mean, you come up with a decent conspiracy theory which I think is uh, you know, there's a lot of them around that are really kind of like have a lot of resonance to them. i I've always I always said... I, I particularly don't think the moon one is one of them. I'm with you. Right no, now. no. I, I <laughs> agree. I mean, you know what it is about that kind of stuff? I think that that, that really is an attack on the human on, on the human brain. Well, the other thing... is you know, the does... idea that you couldn't think of how to get to the moon. Right. You know, it's just seems to be an
0: insult. (laughs) I agree, I agree, but I love hearing, I I love, uh, and I've had people on the program, uh, various programs, debating it. I think it's an interesting debate. However, uh, what it allows uh, the mainstream media and others to do, and uh, our friend over there at Esquire Magazine, who wrote the review, to conflate. So whenever you want to sit down and talk about uh, a, a conspiracy, then, of course, they bring up the... they conflate the the lunar landing hoax with Bigfoot and whatever you want it, whatever you're there to talk about. And, of course, you're dismissed and discredited before you get out of the gate. Well,
3: that's a good idea. I agree with you completely. You
0: well, I, I've always said that, you know, to believe that everything is a conspiracy is about as useful as saying that nothing is a conspiracy. Um, but I, there is... I think the the uh, uh the writer at Esquire made one maybe legitimate interesting point. I want to get your take on that, and that the idea that Cooper really provided the ideology for the right wing militia which led to Timothy McVeigh, which led to the oklahoma bombing so what how do you what do you think of that?
3: Well, I don't think that, that Bill Cooper didn't have anything to do with that. I mean what happened just the Oklahoma bombing, whatever, whatever you think happened there. I mean, there's you know, the school of thought that says that Timothy McVeigh was not the... If he did it, he was a robot, a zombie, you know. I could see that happening. I mean, I've seen the Manchurian candidate like everybody else. And it's one of the great movies of all time as far as I'm concerned. I'm talking about the first one. Even a better <laughs> book.
0: One. Even a better... Yeah, Richard Condon. book. And the book, book is great, too. Richard yes, Condon yes, is a yes.
3: genius, man, you know. Uh, Richard Condon writes the... Oh, writes the forward for um, a book about uh, mind control by that guy. What was his name? Walter Bowert. You ever familiar with that book? No, no. It's very interesting, very interesting well, The book. thing that Condon said
0: that stuck out to me was, I think it was Condon, that you imagine your worst nightmare uh, about some, some situation and, and the truth is probably, you can guarantee the truth is probably far worse.
3: <laughs> well, yes, I, I would say that if it's... Um when you're in this when you're in this zone of uh, mind control and uh trying to change people's minds you know and this goes back to uh, you can go through, you can go through a whole long history of this one of the things about William Cooper which I found to be very interesting was that he hated this guy John B Watson do you know do you know who John B Watson is no no John B. It's a fact. He's a, You should look him up. He's a fascinating figure. He's the founder of behavioral psychology. B.F. Skinner got everything. Everything that B.F. Skinner ever said, he more or less got from John B. Watson. And John B. Watson is famous for one thing. He um, he's famous for several things, but uh, I mean, he's not famous enough that anybody knows who he is. But <laughs> to me, he's famous for one thing. He took a he took a small child from an orphanage. He was the head of the psychology department at Johns Hopkins. He wasn't the nobody. Um, And this is back in the very beginning of the 20th century when the psychology, the idea of the study of the human mind became something that became critical. You know, because democracy brought on the uh, idea that everybody could think for themselves. You know, they, they weren't just serfs anymore. Now they're going to be consumers and, you know, all this kind of stuff that Americans walk around and think of that they are and so watson watson uh took a, a small child from an orphanage who they who they call little albert and uh he basically conditioned he felt that you can condition anybody to do anything I and mean, he was a he was the ultimate believer in the in nature nurture debate he was the he was the uh ultimate believer in the Nurture thing. You could take anybody and teach them anything and make them into anybody you want them to be. So, because he was kind of a sadist, what he did was he got this little baby and put it, and he put a white mouse into the crib. And every time the white mouse was in the crib, his assistant would hit this really loud gong right behind the kid's ear. So the kid eventually became, uh, you know, a conditioned to be afraid of. White mice, because um, because it was unpleasant to see them. You know, it was right. like seemed like. So then he then he got to the point where he was able to convince the kid that be afraid of everything that was furry. You know, it didn't have to be a mouse; it was just something furry. And then then he convinced the kid to be afraid of everything that was white. And. Um, there's this famous picture, actually, I it's probably you can find it on the internet, of John B. Watson wearing a Santa Claus mask and a kid going, Ah! Oh, my <laughs> <You know>? gosh. <laughs> so it like this horrifying thing. And he's not, you know, And and can you guess what John B. Watson wound up being? in his late part of his career
0: I, I'm guessing something to do with MK Ultra. I don't know
3: <laughs> no how about the vice president of the J. Walter
0: Thompson advertising agency ah yes yes <laughs> interesting of course, it's, it's, right. it was like uh, Freud's nephew um oh, Bernays yeah, Bernays Bernays. He, the, uh, yeah that,
3: he, they come together they're, yeah. they're, they're a team kind of <laughs> so, right, right I mean these are the kind of things. Well, William Cooper is the kind of guy like you know he doesn't just look on the end you know he doesn't, he's not somebody like the, the kind of people that, that the annoying thing about conspiracy and truthers of today is that like they don't do their own research <laughs> they don't they just like parrot parrot back a lot of this kind of stuff that they read on the internet right and, like you know it's a cut it's, and it's paste little, generation yeah yeah like, well you can call it that i would not disagree i mean i just feel that like this is frustrating you know because there's a lot of interesting material here that could be looked at and you can actually come up with some interesting things I mean, if the truth is something that, like, all of a sudden you read the internet and everybody believes the same thing, that can't be the truth. <laughs> it's right. not possible. Right. So you know, it's it, it's just. And, but Cooper wasn't like that. I think his followers, a lot of his followers, you know, which there are many, um, were never really understood the world the way Bill Cooper did because they don't have any sense of humor, which is a drag. <laughs> you <laughs> know, and I think Bill Cooper had a fantastic sense of humor. You know, he a lot of the stuff that he came up with was clearly some kind of, like, weird practical joke. I mean, the idea that they were going to shoot a rocket, the Galileo Project, and it was going to shoot it and it was going to smash into Jupiter, and then it was going to blow up and create a new star that had already been named Lucifer. I mean, you know, <laughs> this is a great story, but, I mean, it's not exactly a, a serious theory. <laughs> You know, I think he did it as a as a kind of prank.
0: Right, which maybe a... F- a lot of
3: conspiracy f- people have pranks in them, you know? You know, it's part of the, being a he's sort of a half a Banksy kind of guy.
0: Was and, he dangerous? Uh, was he dangerous?
3: Well, I think he's only dangerous in the sense that he was dangerous to himself because, um, you know, he... At a certain point from all my reporting and people I'm like, talking to, people actually knew him, not necessarily taking everything he said... As face value from his the stuff he said on the radio, um, was that he at a certain point decided that he was going to become a martyr, and he was going to duke it out with the Feds, hopefully, and they were going to come up and you know he was he was going to shoot it out with them, on some level he was planning on doing this, and he did the best he could to set it up, but the Feds wouldn't come up there and and, and shoot at them because they already lived through. Waco and Ruby Ridge and stuff like that, when they clearly murdered those people, you know, I mean, it was like it's not even a, I mean, I don't know, I mean, you know, I think it'd be hard pressed to convince me that the federal government doesn't have blood on their hands for those two incidents, and then the the McVeigh thing, as we to get back to that, um, I mean, that wasn't about Bill Cooper, even though Timothy McVeigh listened to Bill Cooper's show. There's no doubt about it, and according to Cooper he actually came and visited him before the before the Oklahoma City bombing and there's a long thing about it in my book which you can read um, and in fact the FBI came in and interviewed Cooper after the bombing to find because they had heard that McVeigh had come to visit him and um, you know but McVeigh wasn't Cooper didn't convince McVeigh to blow up the thing he was he was mad about Waco he was mad about Waco, and he was mad about a lot of the things that people are still mad about. And um, he, but he was trained as a soldier, so he saw the whole thing as a big, the beginning of some kind of civil war or something like that. And um, you know that's why he said, and he says it to Ed Bradley. He can find the tape, and Bradley is you know the sixty Minutes guy. He asked him like, why did you do this with his kids in the building? And he said, you know, it was it was a it was a target. You know, I wanted to inflict as much damage as possible. You know, and that was the reason why we did it. That's why I did it. And you know, I don't. He, he never mentions, I don't know if he mentions Terry Nichols and those kind of guys and that kind of testimony or not. But you know, that's what he said later on. It was a target, and he wanted the most. You know, the one that caused the most damage.
0: Was was Cooper being targeted uh, by Clinton and the IRS because of his broadcasts?
3: I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that question. I know that Clinton had said that famous thing about how Bo Cooper was the most dangerous radio host in the in the country, and that I've never seen that actually written down. I mean, the only way that people know about it is because Rush Limbaugh said it on the on the air, and um, it, but it's you know I'm I'm willing to believe it, <laughs> so. I mean, there's certain things when you read this kind of material, you go like, well, I'm not going to believe that. I mean, that's just too far-fetched. Or then there's this whole bunch of stuff which comes in the middle, you know, which is like, you know, well, it could be, could not be, you know. And then at a certain point, you know, you're going to go, you're trying to write a book about a guy, right, Bill Cooper. So, um, and you're trying to get the mood of who the guy is and what he did and what he cared about, and and you're trying to make it and i don't personally like to write about people i don't like i find that almost impossible like i never would when i was a music critic or another time i was a movie critic i never like i never wrote about the movies or music that i didn't like because it didn't make any sense i mean if i didn't want to i just didn't write about it i mean only wrote about the ones i like (laughs) so right, right. i I have a hard time you know hatcheting people i don't I don't believe in that you know I just leave it alone if it's so you know if i spent um that's the longest book i ever wrote I've written several books i mean you know, and um it took a long time and it was very kind of difficult to do. I would never write about a guy that i didn't have some feelings for um as as a an admirable enough figure, at least in the fact that his goals were admirable. I've considered Bill Cooper to be an American
0: seeker. Do you think, though, it is, looking- con- and, I, and I say this as someone who, you know, who is in that arena, the, you know, conspiracy arena, do you think it has gone too far the other way? So this distrust of institutions and so forth, is that a dangerous thing?
3: I think it's a terrible... I mean, it's it's a potentially disastrous thing, especially for this country. I mean, just look at the way the Kavanaugh thing went down. I mean, um, you know, if you're if you're really a believer in what most conspiracy people like the Bill Cooper would believe in, which is divide and conquer, you know, you know what I'm talking about, yes, right? Yes. So, so, like, you know, what, what makes people think that this isn't? If you're somebody who believes that the power structure is the real power structure is set up to set everybody else up against each other so they don't even notice that 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 the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, which is the basic scenario of the way things are going. Um uh it's it, so like if you get people to be all bent out of shape about something like Judge Kavanaugh, um, you know, if I'm a Democrat, I'm running a suppose I'm a Democrat, right? I feel like the best my best issue is health care. You know, I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna say look, these guys are trying to take away your health care. You know, don't vote for them. So, um, and, or like the Republicans, the, the sort of normal Republicans, you know, not the, not the people who are like trying to stir shit up all the time, excuse me. Um, the, um, you know, there's, there's reasonable arguments to be had that people could possibly, you know, sit down at the same table and work them out. You know, but not in this climate. Not in this climate, because you've got these people are constantly at loggerheads, you know, they're, they're you know, and so like, why would you, um, so to me, the Kavanaugh thing was just a, a, a big, another one of these circuses, you know, another, just like Kavanaugh said it was, it was a circus. Right, right, Not necessarily for the reasons that he said, but I mean, I think it was just another one of these massive distractions to another episode in the, in the great soap opera of America. And um, this is not very helpful. You know, it's not very
0: useful. What do you think Bill to, Cooper, I mean, this is you know, wildly speculative, of course, but... <laughs> everything is <did, it, laughs> Yes, that's true. But Bill <laughs> Cooper, if he were around today and he had all of these toys, he had social media, he had Twitter, he had the Internet, he had YouTube. Um, you, know, was, you know, I'm assuming that he wouldn't be bounced off in a, in a hurry, but what do you think he'd be doing right now? What do you think he would... Well,
3: Well, for instance, like a guy like Bill Cooper, I mean, I think if Bill Cooper existed now, he'd just be another one of these guys, these blogger guys. The fact, the reason why Bill Cooper became somebody who really mattered, and still matters in some respects, in many respects, I think, um, is because he occurred when he did. Before the, you know, the internet was in existence, but it was before broadband, and all those kind of things, and he was still kind of a creature of the old media, and I think that was important because. And but if he was around now, what would? What, is your question sort of like you know what would Bill Cooper think of Donald Trump or something like that?
0: No, just I guess how how he would operate today, how he would be perceived, how much power would he have, influence?
3: Well, I don't know that he would have that much power or influence because um, there's just a. You know, then he'd be in competition with like all these other guys. You know, all these other people that are on the radio saying this kind of stuff. I mean, the fact that he came when he came, and you know, Alex Jones is clearly—I mean, he he be the, i don't think he'd be the first to admit it—but it's clear that he went to school on Bill Cooper. I mean, he was listening to Bill Cooper's broadcasts when he was growing up in Austin and um, you know and, and in the beginning when they first began to talk I mean you know Jones was very clear about that so like you're my idol you're my inspiration and Cooper you know not being the most friendly guy of course hated Jones because he was in, he he hated most of the people that were in competition with him including Art Bell and these people like that so he anybody that he thought was in competition with him he didn't like him you know so um well you know and um that's just the way he was. But, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, that's a very good question, and it's hard to tell because I think that I'm just so attached to his actual position in the real history to speculate about how what he would say now. See, I don't think he would go for Trump. I mean, his feelings about the Constitution, which I take at face value, I mean, this guy, Trump, is, is too... Um, You know the the power of the executive branch which has been growing you know at least since the 1970s um, you know I I don't think he would go for that the idea of like and the and the the, the, dominionate the idea that the Congress is laughed at he wouldn't like that either I mean he wants to see the government work as it was intended to work the Constitution as it was originally written and made to work. I mean, he says that in his creed or something like that that he writes about in Behold the Pale Horse. And I think that he'd be very dismayed by the way things are going now. I don't think he'd be happy. And um, because he believes in America. I mean, the thing about Bill Cooper, which is really the bottom line for him, is he believes in human freedom, like the best sense of him. He believes in the idea of individual freedom. That's the classic American thing to believe in. That's what you want out of being an American. You want to be able to get along with your neighbor, but you don't want anybody stepping on your rights. And um, I think that uh, he would be a little dismayed about what's going on here. But um, that's just my opinion.
0: Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America. Thank you for spending some time with me.
3: More than happy to do it.
0: Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm gonna tell you what's coming up on the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited.
2: He was gonna do it, he's why. The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. If he wasn't gonna
4: get off the grog, which he wasn't, it was probably gonna kill
2: him. Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison, the truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow yeah, your no mind. <laughs> the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Searant. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the... The Westwood One Podcast
0: app. Next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, who is QAnon? Is he a Trump insider, part of the war against the deep state, or an elaborate hoax? Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
2: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind.